Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is a Somalia-turned-maverick winemaker, Brad Hickey, a a Chicago native. Brad got into the wine game while working as a server at Union Square Cafe in the late 90s. Uh, From there, Brad became the junior wine guy at Les Penas, and a few years later at Cafe Balud, where he was Daniel's first American-born sommelier. Brad fell in love with South Australia on a buying trip in 2004 and vowed to return. And in 2007, Brad returned for his walkabout, fell in love with his wife, Nicole Thorpe, and they have been championing little-known or ultra varietals at their Brash Higgins Winery on their patch of dirt in the McLaren Vale. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. Nice to be here. Right. Well, thank you for being here. Um, I know, you know, we had... Um, we connected on social media through JD shout out to JD Wagner who's in the house um, and he had sent me some of your wines because he I'm a sucker for since so um, and um, and uh, you know just kind of uh, you said you were coming to town you're gonna call me you did and we were able to make this happen we yeah. back and forth thanks for making it happen switching appointments around so glad you're here man thank you yeah there's been I think that we have other connections too. I remember Charles Lawrence a winemaker friend of mine in Japan uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, S- Charles Sibirite Wino. Yes, uh, he was someone else too that I know we've connected through Charles. Yes, yeah. He he told yeah. me about like I, he I think he saw the wines like I know him and I did a IG live with Charles. He's a he's yeah. a character. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine an American winemaker, you know, making his first planting his first vineyards in Japan. It's kind of a obviously he's pretty obsessed. Yeah, passionate. Totally, totally. Yeah. So, uh, what wines are we going to be um, drinking today while we learn all about the Brash Higgins story. We're going to try, we make a Zabibo made in Amphora, and so we thought we would try a, a Greek rendition next to ours okay. as a sort of counterpoint. Okay. Um, so after spending a week in New York, I always end up buying a lot of wine as I do the rounds. Yep. And so this is a chance to sort of look at a couple of things we picked up. Um, and then also I wanted to give you a splash of Cinso since it was something that I, I know is close to your heart. And if we have time, we have an interesting Yeah, man, we Grenache. got time. Just pull out, you know, the Grenache. Im telling you. Because Grenache is a good talking point, too, for... I love Grenache. It's not mine, but that's not always... I, sometimes I like to drink outside the uh, Brash Higgins. Good for you, man. Actually, most of the time, I like to drink outside my own wines. Don't you don't get high on your own supply. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, you want to keep... You got to keep tasting other people's wines, and that's, that's what keeps it interesting. You keep asking yourself questions. Yeah, that's so true. I think I don't. I, I think um, I don't know if like lay people understand. Like even when I was in California, everybody's drinking wines from around the world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you make Pinot Noir, you're drinking Burgundy. You drink, you know, and, and and then you just and then you just drink Northern Rhones and Chardon- and you just you're, you're drinking wines from around the world. Yep. You know that's what that's what winemakers do. I think 
at, at the winemakers that that you are and that I know, like if you're a huge commercial operation, you don't have to drink outside the box. You just yeah make your twenty million cases and. It's always interesting when I meet winemakers that aren't interested in food and wine, and they exist. And it's sort of I know like it's it, a you know, know it's a job they got. Maybe they grew up in agriculture, yep. and yep. it just it wasn't their thing. Yep. And, and um, for me, I come from that background of restaurants and travel, and you know, slight hedonistic. Yep. And working in New York, obviously, you taste the great wines of the world, and you're not paying for them most yep. of the time. So yep. you're accessing DRC or you know and. Mm -hmm high-end Bordeaux's mm -hmm. and then you quit and then you're like whoa yeah I know <laughs> what just happened to my drinking my window just and then you're like oh let's find these there's a lot of cool bottles under $40 exactly you know and then you start making wine and then I kind of left some of those uh like Pinot Noir I really don't want to make it yeah because I really don't want to sort of spoil it for myself and feel constantly like I'm you know benchmarking against yep great pinots from the rest of the world yeah so, so certain wines i like to leave to the side and just enjoy without any sort of um comparison you nice. know nebbiolo is one of those wines too where i'm like let's just leave that to the piemontese you know we don't need to do all of these wines so there's plenty of options obviously in mclaren vale in south australia to keep me entertained good so yeah good 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 so i like to start at the beginning so you're a chicagoan Born and raised in Windy City or just outside the Windy City? Are you Chicago proper? Yeah, both. Um, <laughs> my parents eventually moved up to um, the North Shore for when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So kind of in that sort of Ferris Bueller's Day Off mm -hmm. part of um, the world. So um, everybody still lives in Chicago. My sister just moved actually to Wisconsin. But for the most part, the family is still in that sort of suburban area uh, up north. Um, so yeah, spent you know my formative years going in and out of the city and and enjoying that, and then once I went to college, I actually sort of never really lived and worked in Chicago proper. Okay. It's interesting. I um, I just exploded and went other directions, you know, as far away as as possible at sometimes. But yeah, definitely, and born and raised, and it's still fun to go back to Chicago, even though it's got a little bit more of a bit of a crisis going on there with some of the violence. Yeah, uh, which is really sad. To see that, but um, yeah, it still it still is my my home in a lot of ways. Yeah, and when we were t when we were doing our little twenty questions warm up, asked you about food. Um, who's the chef? Like one of the best. He's an American, but he makes killer Mexican food. What's that guy's name? Rick Bayless. Bayless, yes. Yeah. So interesting. Must, yeah, it must be fun to go home to. And also, Chicago's got a huge. I saw like on one, on a travel show or something, or one of those Andrews and food shows. Mm -hmm. Like they, th there's like a Mexican farmers market. Like it's like sick. Like all the regionalities, and you go and right. you're getting, you know, like like it would be like a street festival, like in LA or something, just getting crazy tacos and gorditas and and uh, oh, what are the sandwiches? Come on, tortas. Yes. There's, I mean, there's obviously very active Mexican populations all over the U.S. Yeah. In Australia, it's few and far between. So it's kind of far, man. That's that's a, that's a that's a tough. You really Hike. You need can't to walk to Australia. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> it's a yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, it's an expensive journey. Yeah. So yeah, so you really need to have those the native people that you know bring out the joy. Yeah. Otherwise, it's usually kind of lame, watered down interpretations. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but that's okay. And that's the fun part about coming back to the states for me is is getting to you know, enjoy all of that beautiful Mexican food. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like. Uh, uh, 
what's absence makes the heart grow fonder. Like, and you have a better appreciation. Like, you know, if you had it every day, then you probably wouldn't need it as much. Like, yeah, I don't know. You yeah, know. but um, so you said you you um, you went to university. I want to talk about that because I was I was going through doing the show notes and I was like, you know, you said University of Wisconsin at Madison, which I, I had to look. at I'm like. I'm like, dumb, duh, duh, that's the only one. I mean, there's obviously other cities. I was like, no, that's the big, that's the one. Mm. And you played Division One soccer. I did, yeah. I was I was pretty good at it. I focused. Clearly. <laughs> I, focused. I came from a, actually a football family. My father, like gridiron football. My, okay. My father was a really successful college quarterback. He ended up playing for University of Illinois. Mm. And then, but he was, so he was like a real uh, huge hero to me growing up. And how cool my dad was amazing to play catch with, you know, because he'd be throwing these tight ass spirals. <laughs> yeah. And you'd be doing all, you know, kind of Lynn Swan one handed catches and stuff. And as a kid, you can, you were indestructible. But I, he was such a hero to me just because I'm like, you know, looking at the newspaper clippings. Yeah. And, and for some reason, I, and he was never pressured me into playing football. I think by the time he got to this highest level, he was kind of burnt out on it. And he's like, just do whatever makes you happy. And I really love soccer. And we played it year round, and mm -hmm. so and it was very competitive. And I worked, played on some really good teams around the Chicago area. You know, so a, a huge melting pot of European and other type of kids that grew up there, and that really kind of suited me well, and, and allowed me to to compete on Division One level. And then I grew into being a bigger, man, you know, like six foot two, and then then you can really start playing with you know the big Scottish fullbacks that are yeah yeah you know, sharpening knives in the back of the. <laughs> You know, and the little Jamaican midfielders, and then you, so I just kind of roar through the middle of the field <laughs> and just create havoc. Um, but yeah, I did a I did a good stint there, and that was really fun to play at that level. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. That's really cool, man. And um, remind me, uh, or just for our listeners who haven't read your bio, what did you major in while you were there? I majored in English Lit. I did a uh, honors degree in, in English Lit, and then sort of a minor in Botany. So there was a nice kind of left brain, right brain. Uh, collision. I remember looking at the curriculum, and I, I was always felt so grateful to be in that sort of higher learning in a university in Madison. It had the glorious, you know, buildings and the beautiful mm -hmm. campus, mm -hmm. and the, it's right on Lake Mendota. It's on an isthmus, so it's just situated in such a beautiful spot. And I remember just being kind of like giddy about being there, and I really wanted to study the sort of stuff that I thought would s help me lead a better life and give me some insight into maybe what I would do with my life once I got out of university. And English was the kind of cool way to read about other, you know, intelligent people writing and, and, and discussing those sort of topics. And then the other side was, yeah, more interested in the natural world and learning about that capacity and how that kind of plays in. So, yeah, it's an interesting sort of duel between the two. That is actually um, <coughs> an interesting combination of, um, to put together. Um, it sort of serves me well. It's interesting at the time I wasn't thinking it would ma made much sense. And of course, if you're an English major, you can constantly get sort of slammed by everybody in your family yeah. saying, what are you going to do with that? You're going to be an English teacher. <laughs> That's what you're going to do. Yeah, you're going to be a grade school teacher. Yeah. Or are you, you know, going to work at Stanley Kaplan? Uh, you know, uh, and you're just like, hey, just leave me alone. You know, I'll figure it out. And it gave me the courage to go off and travel and say, I'll figure this out. I mean, most kids go to university probably too soon. They're, they're just kids. You know? I agree. So, and I like that idea of the, the year gap year and, you know, at least that, you know, and take some time and go travel and get out of your little ecosystem of your, your home and your family. And I think 
that's what I realized. I was in university, but I was like, well, I'm going to get out of this. I'm probably going to spend a good deal of time traveling and sort of meet some people and see some things. And maybe these experiences, you know, when people talk about young writers, they always say, you know, go experience, you know, build experience, meet people, go out and see the world. And I think that was in the back of my mind through through all of that. And then, you know, then all of a sudden you have a, a background that also includes plants and horticulture. And that kind of now makes perfect sense where I sit now as a, as a grape grower and as a winemaker. So you've got a lot of, and you can talk, you can go into the market and go to restaurants and you can express yourself and you can, you know, it's also a nice asset to be able to sell your wines is to be able to talk about them and, or do a wine dinner and not, you know, completely. And, and, and I think, and to tell a story more so than just doing what people read in the text sheets. I mean, you have, yeah. you're kind of grounded in story because um, I, you said you, want, you were going to write the next great American novel. So after you graduated, what did you do? Where'd you go? I was, I went to Paris. Nice. And I had a good friend of mine from the soccer team was a year or two older, and he had moved there to be a teacher, and he offered me a, you know, a small six-by-three-foot space on his floor, and that was enough. And so I flew over and crashed on his floor and then slowly kind of got acclimated and found my own place and got a job, ironically working at Chicago Meat Packers, which was a restaurant, like a burger restaurant. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was going to say, what kind of yeah, with a slaughterhouse theme. So it was, you know, cattle being led to the slaughter. And the French were okay with that. You know, clearly it's a little bit, it was a little bit, yeah. Wait, I was trying to be like, <laughs> was it actually like a cattle yard walking through or just like, was it video or just, it was just, was it on the walls? Was there blood on the walls? Yeah. Like, what, what is that a slaughterhouse theme? <laughs> they didn't describe it as a slaughterhouse theme. But, you know, Chicago had the history of like the hog butcher of the world. Yeah. And, and had a lot of yep. history of abattoirs. And then, so there'd be lots of, you know, shots of cattle, lots of pictures, black and white photos okay. of, of cattle yards. And, and, uh, yeah, and it was very surreal because they would play the simulcast of a radio station I used to grow up listening to, like while my mother was ironing. You know, it was like <laughs> Dick Biondi doing oldies and the Carpenters and all this kind of weird American 1960s music. That so they loved the fact that I was the Chicago kid and I was like, you know, young and like I was like a really kind of excited to be in the city and it was so bizarre. But you know, and so you're learning French and you're mm -hmm. getting to know your way around, but you're sort of strangely in this weird Chicago. It lasted about three months. Okay. <laughs> and I was a busboy, you know, because my French was very, very rough, you know. Yeah. But um, it was a great introduction to getting a job and meeting people in Paris. And then I was able to travel and then come back to Paris and then use it as a base. And then, you know, you could go off and go work in the vineyards in the south of France, go down to Greece, you know, and pick oranges, and then you come back and crash on a friend's couch. And that's what I wanted to do was develop a, a group of friends, mostly obviously young people, but different people that we could, we could all kind of support each other. And those are probably my closest friends to this day are those people that I met during that, that sort of era. And that was when the Berlin Wall came down. So that okay. was also historically an interesting time. I mean, obviously, I didn't understand all the ramifications of it back then, but it was pretty fun now looking back at that era. Um, so that was 89, 90. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and Paris was great, you know. And But it was really an opportunity to visit all the other kind of neighboring cities, you know, and get a little chance to go up into the U.K. or go down into, you know, Spain or wherever, you, wherever there was an interesting lead, I would go there. Mm -hmm. And then you'd hitchhike, which was also kind of scary, you know. And you kept pushing yourself and 
taught myself a lot about becoming self-reliant and you know how am I going to make money to do this and then you would be standing on a corner at sunrise with a bunch of Polish workers you know like waiting for some random truck to come by to pick you up wow. for a day's work. Wow. You go mix concrete all day or go help a bricklayer or, you know, go work in a field and help clear it. And it was these really kind of almost like Jack Kerouac, you know, these on-the-road type experiences. And it could be, looking back on it, you could have easily just been, you know, caught up into pieces and, you know, tossed into the Aegean. I know, right? <laughs> So trustworthy, but I figured the Polish guys were out there, you know, and yeah. they were, they, you know, those guys are pretty grizzly, and I wasn't a pushover, so, but that was a really scary but exciting when you could get paid, and then you're like, all right, I just made enough money to, to travel to, to Crete, and then I can work in an orange grove, maybe, and then, you know, they're feeding you these beautiful meals, and you're eating fresh oranges, and it's like, you're like in this sort of weirdly beautiful scene, even though you're completely removed from, from what you're used to. And that really, I think, helped me later in life be more confident to take chances, you know, thinking that I'll be able to figure my way out of this. And, uh, yeah, it's served me really well. That time abroad was, was absolutely magic. Yeah, I, I, was, I really love what you said, the, the, the self-sufficiency uh, and, um, like, how am I going to make money? And, and, and I mean, because nowadays, <laughs> I mean, even before the pandemic, you know, it seems like, people don't want to work a little bit, you know, so like, yeah. like kids aren't, kids don't, kids don't mow lawns anymore. Mm. They don't shovel walks. Like when I was, a, when I was growing up, I'm 54, like we would go, we'd take the lawnmower and see if we cut people's grass. We need money. Yeah. Or, or the winter, we'd go shovel walks. Yeah. You don't see that anymore. It does not exist. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a um, shame. It is a shame. Um, what, so just parents aren't uh, raising, I mean, it, it has to start I, somewhere, right? I, I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, mm. I mean, my family um, was uh, construction workers. Well, my dad left that to work in the post office, so we always were doing like, you know, masonry, and he did heat and air conditioning. So I kind of grew up around that stuff. Yeah. Um, didn't like to do it, but grateful for it now. Like you said, like so many things. Like yeah. you're in Europe after the fall of the, after the uh, Berlin Wall comes down. That yeah. I mean, looking back, like, uh, I mean, there just must have been an air in Europe that you don't know now, but now you're like, wow, you were part of a really historic time. Yeah. I mean, I had absolutely zero to do with that wall coming down. <laughs> but, you know, I'm now visiting Berlin and being a little bit older and understanding the historical significance mm -hmm. of it, and you spend time in Berlin, and it's, it is, it's haunted by history there. And it's amazing to imagine that even existed 30 years ago, that sort of physical barrier. It's just unreal. So, yeah, I mean, had no idea that was, I remember the soundtrack. It was like some song, remember that song, Right Here, Right Now? Yep. I forget the name of the band, you know, uh, yeah. but it was like constantly I know playing. the song, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really cool. And so after you go on this European adventure and literally kind of working your way through Europe, yep. um, where'd you land next when, where'd you land next when you returned home to the U.S.? I was super, I was really, really hungry to travel the U.S. I was excited to be back. You know, I was homesick, obviously, and it was a big leap, even though it was, you know, Europe's not exactly, you know, the craziest place to go, but it was still significantly lonely and hard work mm -hmm. to be welcomed into a city as tricky as Paris, which is very nationalistic in a lot of ways. And as an American, they kind of love you and hate you. Yeah, but everybody knows <laughs> we all have our feelings about the French, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they think Americans have no culture, but exactly. then they, they love Prince and right. Michael Jordan. Right. And, 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 and now hip-hop and Wu-Tang. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're loved and hated at the same time. 
And, uh, you know, that idea of not really speaking the language, you never really know what, you know, you, you're uncomfortable all the time, kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, mm -hmm. even talking to girls, you're like, ah, I really wish I could talk to you and use the killer, you know, my city sound like, you know, some sort of <laughs> strange <Yeah>. robot. <laughs> you're preparing your next sentence. Like none of my head. lines are going to work on her. It's just not going to land <laughs> on Fifi. Yeah. <laughs> She's gonna see right through yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. You know, for that, you remember that being kind of embarrassed to like speak, and people be like, "Oh, you're oh, you're American. Clearly, yeah. you're clearly murdering our language. <laughs> um, why don't you just go home?" And then you learn the cu the cute expressions, you know, like "Je parle français comme une vache espagnole," which yeah. is like, "I speak like a Spanish cow." <laughs> and they go, oh, and they go, "Okay, you know, oh, you're trying." Yeah. You know the old expressions, and then they, you slowly you get your foot in. Um, when I went back home, I I wanted to sort of to explore the US, I paid off some debt, which was obviously kind of looming from the European adventure. And then a good friend of mine in Europe uh, flew over from Paris and he'd never been to the States. And so we drove a friend's car from Yale. He was a law student doing an internship in San Diego and had two weeks to drive his car across country and had you know a great experience exploring the U.S. and especially the mm. West, going up through South Dakota and, and Montana and down through Wyoming and through the Rockies, and and then that led to sort of a continual traveling of that whole summer, probably three months of crisscrossing the U.S. using auto driveaway cars. I don't know if you remember those. Mm -mm. It was a really interesting way to travel. You could there was a franchise, and most major cities had an auto driveaway business. Okay. And if, for example, if you wanted to have your car delivered to Cleveland and you're based in New Jersey, they would offer your car to travelers, they pay the first tank of fuel, and then I would have to deliver it to an address in Cleveland. And then you'd be in Cleveland, and you get your car, and I'd have to figure out how See, to get See, that's it. real ride-sharing, kids. Yeah. <laughs> so you try to get a car that was modern enough where that full tank of gas would get you almost all the way across the country. Yeah. And then you'd pay a couple of, you know, maybe a tank or two of fuel, and, and you had a great experience, and, and you got to see the U.S., and did that a little bit back and forth from like New Orleans, all over. Anyways, ended up in Portland, Oregon, and mm -hmm. settled in the Northwest. Really liked it. Had a young vibe. A lot of overeducated kids. You know, it was a lot of very chill. Um, you know, a lot of interesting jobs outside of restaurants that I got involved in, like baking bread and brewing beer and things that were you know anything possible to stay out of service industry jobs. I uh, worked in a nursery there, like planting trees, and got involved in like a small landscape business I just designed on my own. You know, had a lot of out of work philosophy friends, you know, that come on, let's go dig some holes for the day. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, Portland was really cool. That was in the 90s, and it was had a sense of humor. It was, you know, beautifully, physically beautiful. Could go to the wineries, you know, and visit and get a little bit of that sort of Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley and learn about that. And then there's also was an interesting vibe in Portland because it was so chilled that there's an old joke about people go to Portland to retire in their 20s because <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, the weed is really good and you're just drinking nice beer and it's like there's not a lot of pressure for a lot of – and life was good. And I was like – And it had to be inexpensive. I mean, yeah. Portland was like I, – I, I would have to – it was like the shit back in the 90s. Like Yeah. That's just I mean, everybody from California was moving up to buy land, and there was that kind mm -hmm. of land war mm -hmm. going on between. So Portland had like yeah, it had a lot of kind of hippie, liberal, yeah. angry hippies, and then it also had like white trash, meth, hi hillbillies, and then it had, you know, lots of Californians kind of trying to find <laughs> buy land. 
and I loved it. It was really beautiful, and I rode my bike everywhere, and it was really healthy, and it was, you know, it was really fun. But I felt the sort of magnetism of New York City was was looming, and and I left Portland in '96 and drove across to New York. Had a friend who was working kind of in glossy magazines, worked for Spin magazine. I remember Spin. And he's like, "Come on to New York." He's an old high school friend. He's like, "You can crash with me and my girlfriend, and you know, you got to come here. It's amazing." And so. Drove across country. I think he was probably surprised I said I'm coming. And then he's you, like, "You do a lot of driving across country." Yeah, that was. <laughs> like, who wouldn't want to drive? And then he's broke up with his girlfriend. And then I was like, "Great." So I've got nowhere to stay. And fortunately, I had an air mattress with me, and just would inflate and deflate the air mattress, um, all over Manhattan. So I could stay with somebody, but I just have to blow up the air mattress, you know? And, and it was Wait, all done. I love that. Like, that's a seasoned traveler. <laughs> He's got an air mattress. It's like, that's fine. Just got a piece of floor. Yeah. <laughs> I got my own mattress, and then my lungs were really strong. It was all done by, you know, orally just blowing the thing oh up. Oh, my God. Remember that? And uh, I can't tell you how many, how many nights sleeping on that air mattress. But eventually, you know, I got settled into New York a little bit and got a job at Home Restaurant, which was the first restaurant on Cornelia Street. Mm. And... That was really cool because the one of the people who was a regular there lived in an apartment building on Bedford and Downing, right in the West Village. And she's like, oh, there's an apartment downstairs and, you know, I'll make an intro if you want to meet the owner. And I was like, yeah, tired of inflating and deflating <laughs> and living in North Bergen and taking those little vans back and oh forth and, yeah. you know, weehawking and, and, uh, and you know, so I got this apartment like right remember the, oh, there was a blue ribbon on the corner of Bedford and Downing and it was a gorgeous little West Village street and then so I moved into this studio apartment and I was like living the life the first five years in New York I was that's freaking amazing I know yeah I had a job I had it was $800 a month see that's freaking amazing and then <laughs> five years later after 9-11 she offered it me for like $150,000 and I didn't take it and I'm thinking you should have just bought. See, we, I know. when we were st when we were warming up, I said, "What advice you give your younger self? Like, <laughs> got to be a apartment. crazy investment, dude. You see, like, 150. I mean, like, right near NYU. It's a no-brainer. You, I know. You'd have, you've made a million. million. You'd have made a million dollars off that off of rent by now, bro. <laughs> I know. So but that you, you that live haunts and learn. me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I was like, I can four hundred fifty thousand. I can buy acreage. <laughs> <laughs> I can, you know, start making whiskey in Vermont. Yeah. I love where your head's at, though. <laughs> and then I had to move up to the Upper West Side, which was a whole different vibe. You know? Yes. Uh, but equally as appreciated. By the, the latter half of my New York City stay, it was – but anyways, we're jumping way ahead. But that's that's kind of what I did. I, I, I love the Northwest, and then after a while, I kind of felt it was – I wasn't being challenged enough. And you said uh, reality bites, and I'm going to get out of here. yeah. I mean, New York is not for everybody, and I think that was also, as yeah. you know, that's another sort of chapter of yep. your your New York City era. And yep. how do you yep. how do you react to a city that is not interested at all in you? Totally, does so <laughs> not want to esteem you at all, and you're staring at it from Weehawken on a rooftop, going, "How am I ever going to make anything work in there?" Because yeah. it's just like a burning, impenetrable canyon. It's a tough town. No. And then and then when you talk about but it's so funny now that you talk about like um Weehawken, like you know what you could have bought in Weehawken with a view of New York City back then in the nineties mm. and now those are all one point five million dollar mm. studios like um but um yes it it's that's why 
if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. It's, it, it is it is a city that uh, is going to keep going no matter what. Can you yeah. keep up pace? Can you keep up and can actually can you accelerate your pace? I love that. So um, you mentioned like when you were in Portland, you were doing you know, like you, you, you baked bread, you, you got into fermentation, you brewed beer. You said anything to avoid hospitality. So what happened when you got to New York? I was I was trying to get involved in freelance writing and journalism okay. uh, through my sort of literary connections, and also with my background, I was also interviewing for jobs with like Simon and Schuster, and you know I wasn't sure what to do, but I felt like I needed to start getting a bit more serious, and then I obviously needed some 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 cash to to live, and I had worked in restaurants in France, and okay. I had I w- and I I was comfortable working in restaurants. I think. Uh, it wasn't a huge reach. Um, and so in New York, it was really more about food and socializing and getting your getting money in quickly, you know. So you knew, always knew you could have tips, right? Yes. And, and it was great. So you could bring money in on the first week you start working. You can yep. then you all – and that network led to my first apartment. So I was working in there at Home Restaurant, which was a cute little Cornelia Street across from the original Poe, which was Mario Batali's first restaurant. Okay. And it was doing like kind of, you know – Using all the cool local butchers like FICO's Pork Shop, and the, you know there was a, the steak was coming from a great little steak shop that's closed. A butcher, anyways. There's all this kind of cool stuff, and they were really, they were really raising the bar as far as what they expected their waiters to know. And mm-hmm. this was like Danny Meyer era, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hospitality where your servers need to be now kind of like knowledgeable about food and. So I knew a lot about food, and that was also cool. So I had like a little quiz that you had to fill out. You know, it was like name six mushrooms, or what's the difference between a single malt and a blended whiskey. And and I did really well on the test. And they're like, oh great. And so I was like, I'm like, this is a tough city. Like that's my first job in a little sort of bistro. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I left New York. I kind of had like that first year New York blues, where I was like, man, I'm gonna go see the old girlfriend back in Portland. And and then went back to Portland. Was like, this is no way, man. <laughs> I made a huge mistake. <laughs> Can you never go home again, yep. right? And so I'm like, come back to New York. I'm training now. I'm like getting fit. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna take this city on. And then applied for a job at Union Square Cafe, and that was the number one city in the uh, number one Zagat yep. popular yeah. restaurant. Time, yeah, at the time, yeah. And I thought, well, this will be well, as well. You know, I'm good at this. Let's just see. I'll work at the best place possible. Mm-hmm. And got a gig there after like five trails and you know they really again put you through a lot of extra work i mean that first week of trailing you're not you know you work almost literally five shifts and then you work with a group of elders that will talk about you know behind your back they talk about whether or not you're good fit are you that 51 (laughs) percent you know or are you that 49 percent and you know i really worked hard for that job and i and i and I got it, and then I got really turned on by the wine program there and mm-hmm. realized this is really fun, part of restaurant work, the intelligent. I mean, the intellectual part for me was the wine yeah. program, yeah. not being involved in the kitchen. And Karen King, who was the wine director there, was really um, generous and did a really good job training the staff. And again, this was kind of the upper echelon of servers where there was a lot of expectation, and mostly just just because the, the level of clientele there was – was very demanding and very sophisticated and but they also needed the servers to be really nice and they really prided themselves on getting good people and Karen King was really 
she wasn't like an on the floor psalm either. She was doing the wine buying and stuff, but she was she let the waiters be basically the sort of their own psalms. Yep. And the list was maybe even a couple hundred selections, and mm-hmm. so it was a good opportunity to, to learn uh, the list. And then I started thinking, well, this could be really interesting to maybe this career of buying wine and writing wine lists. I like that almost more than writing stories. That's a neat idea of using your own your own your own interests to create a, a list and it was something that I said I remember very you know one moment just saying I'm gonna go for this I'm gonna do this I'm gonna focus I can just sit in the city for the next 10 years just mm-hmm. floundering and Karen was nice enough to get me an introduction to Joseph Nace who was the wine director at Lesbonas which is you know four-star Louis the 14th dining room tuxedo St. Regis mm-hmm. Which is where I met Oscar. I was gonna say, then Oscar was there, then, right? Yeah, so Oscar <laughs> Henke or Henket. Shout uh, out out Oscar Henket. Yeah, so he was wandering through the corridors of the Saint Regis, and I was working in the wine cellar, and our paths didn't cross all the time. But you know, he's a fairly distinguished-looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, um, but so that was my first sort of, you know, boom. I was in a really, you know, established but fairly cold hotel you mm-hmm. know with a deep underground labyrinth and working in a cellar that you know was fluorescent lights and totally different vibe than being in the congenial union square hospitality mm-hmm. family uh, and it was a huge adjustment but i kind of looked at it as a stage an apprenticeship where i'm going to make less money but i'm also working at the saint regis and it's the dining room up there is you know one of the most exciting wine programs in in the world and joseph was going for the grand award for wine spectators, so there was a green light to purchase. Buy, 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 buy. Yeah, and yeah. that was fun as a young wine mm-hmm. guy because I really didn't know that much. And you learn very quickly how much you don't know about wine yeah. when you get into a program. And it's so humbling. And then you're like, okay, I need to, you know, all these labels look alike. What's that all about, <laughs> you know? And you just go crazy. Oh, well, there's another year. What happened to that? Old? You know, so it's all that uh, classifying and organizing. And then, you know, then he would. He, I wasn't even on the floor then. I was just doing like room service restocks mm-hmm. and and running the behind the scenes stuff for the first nine months. And then eventually, they're like, what do you think about coming up on the floor? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. And got fitted for a tux. And I remember just being so nervous on mm. that floor, like I'm in a new world, you know, like bumping into like you know the queen, like oh I'm sorry, you know. And they're like, oh that guy, <laughs> who's that guy on the floor? <laughs> he just bumped into the queen. And you're like, oh, that was a queen? <laughs> queen of what? Yeah. That was Elton John I just knocked down the stairs. You know, it's 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 so funny because you, you obviously you mentioned Oscar. He we just dropped his episode uh on the uh a week ago, which means nothing to you because this won't drop for f- three weeks. But um Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, like his stories, like like it's like like there's there's these there's levels of things and there's whole other worlds that we don't even mm. like and when I when when I when I heard about Oscar I was like I was like wait you're Ellen John's private butler I didn't know that like existed yeah. like you know Mater G the Taj what the what the f- is that yeah you know and like like you said it's a place where the Queen England <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know Elizabeth um, Taylor had her own yeah so it was a different world. Taylor. I mean, I remember going up to Michael Jordan's room with a bottle of wine and being like, rip on me? <laughs> you know, it's like a 1941 Cheval Blanc half bottle. And he's like, a, or totally loved being in his room because he's obviously, you know, constantly being bom- yeah. bombarded. Yep. Yep. And it's that kind of, I'm like, here we go. You know, this will be interesting. 
So there was exposure to lots of celebrities on the floor there, and that mm-hmm. was 2000, so you know, Y2K. Yep. But mad buying, really big, big time. And it was really quite easy to sell wine there because you just had to know your way around your wine list. And then people would be like, do we do the Range Rover or the 61 Margot? And you're like, Margot, <laughs> do the Margot. <laughs> like, oh, okay. We already have the 10 Range Rover. And so <laughs> Wait, just for you guys, he did say Range Rover. He is talking about the automobile. So we buy another automobile or a bottle of wine. That's what he said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not being paid by Range Rover. <laughs> and neither am I. But you might want to consider. <laughs> I do think this is a luxury podcast. So... <laughs> We'll see what happens. Um, any of you interns out there in the wine working for Range Rover say, hey, there's a black wine guy and some guy from Australia. And we can go down there and film something that Brad shake it. I mean, yeah, the, whole, the ideas are going now. Thanks so much, Brad. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, that that year or so in that restaurant, because it was very strange because the, the waiters were like hired guns. They were the, they were really good. Like but they the were, best, right? But they were really sneaky because mm. they were, it was a union. And it was oh. like, and half of them were Romanian. And oh, the right, Romanians right, right. were like very sarcastic, but they were really good. And you never knew they were sarcastic. Like that's how sarcastic they were. Yeah, they'd be like, <laughs> yeah, it, they were really good at like, oh yes sir, of course right. sir, you know, like, Ugh. and you know, um, it, the restaurant had just resurfaced after it was closed for a while after there was a sexual harassment suit between mm. a Kochek girl and one of the maitre d's, and that showed the power of the union in that in that hotel. Greg Coons was the chef who was a magic, you know, huge inspiration, Swiss chef, mm-hmm. and he had to leave. And then Christian Duluvrier came in, and that's who I worked with for the next chapter. And very classic French chef. But I learned a heck of a lot, you know, that all the walk-ins would have, like, you know, woven baskets with green beans, and it was very different than any walk-ins I've ever seen. And and I learned very much what four-star service meant. You know, some of the waiters and, and some of the maitre d's and all those guys were all super incredibly high class and really, really gorgeous with people. And you learned how to anticipate people's needs. And it was a great experience. And all the ways to get out of making a table feel uncomfortable. And that's where those Romanian waiters and the other waiters on the team were so good that they could, they could predict a problem at a table and then diffuse it. Or they would never be stumped. You know, they knew how to get out of a table if they were stuck. And they'd be like, you know, excuse me, there's a fire. You know, they knew all the ways to step away from a table so nobody felt embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can th- that was something that, I, that was a, a huge help later as I took over programs. And then you become the face of a program. You know, you have to find ways of excusing yourself um, from situations. And maybe you don't know the answer. You know, and back then, which was only 20 years ago, you know, nobody had Google at their fingertips. Right. So if you lied, you know, they're going to bust you. Like now they're like, oh, yeah, I don't think so. Right. You know, tell me those seven Grand Cruz of, you know, and you're like, "Uh, there's uh, Murphy. Uh, You know, (laughs) you're like, Murphy? I've never heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Joseph Nace, who was the wine director there, said, you know, here's how you actually – make this work you know your wine list better than anybody else yeah. you know your chef's cooking and your chef almost better than your partner and you have a good reference book nearby there it and is. you know if you know your list very few people are going to bother you with questions of you know tokai law like what's the azu petunios <laughs> they just want to know what's drinking well tonight and what's going to be in their comfort zone so you read very quickly what someone's 
after, what they're going to do, you know, what their price range is, maybe where they're comfortable being, and then you, you work fast because they're really not that interested in you. They're there with their guests. And so all that stuff was a really good experience. And then that led to Danielle, which was also kind of in that same rarefied era, mm -hmm. and working with Jean-Luc Ledoux, uh, absolute legend, uh, at Danielle, and being, uh, yeah, sort of primed to, to replace the Somme who had worked at Cafe Blue, which was up near the Whitney back then, uh, where the Whitney was on the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. And then that was another world of being in that very French, you know, very sort of, you know, where did you study wine? And I'd be like, I've just kind of learned right. on the go. <coughs> you know, I'm a quick study. And they were like, uh-uh, no, you <laughs> should have gone to the school of gastronomie at uh, Vion. And you're like, uh so that was always weird, you know, and and it followed me even further when I got into winemaking because I learned a lot of it on my own and right. just through instinct. Sure. And a lot of people, you know, they judge you very quickly if you haven't uh, gone through a university system. So it's an interesting way to, to, especially in that kind of environment too, where most of the kids that were working there had gone to, you know, had been involved in some sort of training back yeah. in France. Yeah. So. Or the Netherlands, like Oscar. Yeah. These whole, these, yeah, very interesting. You know, let's take a quick break because um, uh, I want to unpack a little bit more and then we'll get into uh, <coughs> Australia. So we'll be right back, everybody. Okay, we are back. So you were talking about um, the fact that most of your wine education is it's, it's self kind of, it's not formal, let's put it that way. Like you've had right. great mentors and you've worked great people, and I remember when I started in the business in the l in like '97 with Acker, which is high end retail, um, and I thought about getting an MS, and they're like, "Ah, eh, you don't like back then. You didn't need like it, it. It wasn't such a thing. The people who had it were from Europe, basically. Like there was only a few. There was like a handful of master psalms in New York City. They were all from Europe. They were all from France or somewhere, and um, but." There were people running programs like yourself who just knew wine yep. and loved wine. Um, and um, I think that's shifted now. But, yeah, talk about that. So you said some people would look down on you a little bit when you when – uh, a little bit. Or there was a, uh -huh, a raising of the nose a little bit. Yeah, there's, I mean, wine has always been such a complicated – social class it's an elitist beverage in a lot of environments and it is it is thanks for saying that i mean i know people want it but it, that's kind of just the nature of what it's been i mean and in those environments too it was very much cachet and prestige and people had lots of money well yeah they're range rover or a bottle of wine yeah Rain, <laughs> range rover oh yeah <laughs> dot com dot yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice one. I, yeah i think uh i think it ties back into some of that sort of you know having the the balls to go and do things like find jobs that I wasn't necessarily like in in Europe like standing on that corner and going I don't know what's going to happen but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to get out of this with enough cash to keep traveling mm -hmm. and in the restaurant business it, it was the same thing with Union Square I'm just going to work at the best place I can work with the best I people I love that philosophy Well then you do work with people that are really cool yeah. they're hard working and a lot of them are really they're really smart smart they m many of the guy, Union Square people were artists or yep. opera singers yep. or well had, educated like Juilliard Ivy League type you know yeah. you're, you're like this is big time hospitality yeah Yeah and you felt good about making people happy that was the part yes. of the enlightened hospitality and that was and waiters were given given respect and they were given 
you know, the sort of way to kind of you could solve situations without having to run to a manager. But that was always kind of like my feeling was work with the best. And then the next step, you should always work with a good wine program, even if you're polishing glasses, because really it comes down to just showing up. Yep. You know, and osmosis. You're going to hear stuff. You're there. You're in the you're room. You're there. And when someone quits or something happens, you know, you're going to continue. And if you know the person who's in charge, you you know, they see that you're passionate, <laughs> and then they start. Yeah, exactly. They start teaching you, and they start teaching. They're like, okay, well, maybe you can help work this shift, or maybe help with inventory, and then go to a tasting. I can't make it, and mm-hmm. then it, th- that person starts to really evolve, and that's what I did, and I got involved at the St. Regis, which was way out of my s- league. And I remember, like I said, being terrified on that dining room floor, bumping into people, just like, ah, oh. you know, we needed a place where Brad could stand, like just in <laughs> not get in anybody's way. Yeah, gotcha. Just plug into the wall yeah, for a while yeah. and charge. Yeah, you stand over there. And uh, yeah, and that, that really served me well. You know, I think that idea of being scared going into something and, and that, that sort of facing that fear, and then you realize, okay, it's really not that big a deal. It's just my own head that's doing it. And, but there would be times on the floor, you know, the, the guests would be looking for the master sommelier pin yes. and saying, aren't you a master sommelier? Why, then why should I listen to you? Yeah. And that was an interesting, because that was somebody who really wanted to pick a fight. And then you'd have, right. to, def- you'd have to defuse that because right. right. that no one's going to win that battle. Right. Then you'd be like, excuse me. And then I would never go back to that table. You know, it would get passed on to somebody else. But, yeah, there was that sort of, there was that sort of, feeling amongst the industry as well like Jean-Luc was Jean-Luc Ledoux was like the first rock star sommelier to me like Roger de Gorn was was a chanterelle and Jean-Luc had taken over Danielle and Jean-Luc loved to party and he loved rock and roll and the clash and he was fun you mm-hmm, know and he mm-hmm. was young and he was like raw and he was so cool and I remember just being like that whole paradigm shift with him here in New York and that was really amazing to work with him under him for a while and learn how he thought about wine and got in, you know his sort of mentorship um, different than Joe Nace's at Lespinas, but still really helped kind of teach me how to focus a wine program and how to sell wine and how to and how to have fun you know and but doing it all without a, a master sommelier yep. accreditation because I was like I'm in it I'm already where right, I want to be exactly <coughs> I got the job I actually started working for David Boulay which is another Oscar crossover. We worked together at the Boulet when it reopened after 9-11 mm-hmm. and very quickly got involved as the wine du- as the wine buyer there. The first David Boulet's universe is exciting and it's incredibly manic at times. And when that restaurant first opened, it was hadn't been finished completely and it was the old Boulet Bakery, which I think is now a Citibank um, down on West Broadway. But you had to be really patient to kind of work there, but I loved getting into that program, and, and Boulay's cooking was absolutely amazing, and, and the tasting menu and his level of clientele was really exciting because there's a lot of foodies that from around the world as a destination restaurant. Yep. And then it became a whole other scene of just running that program. you know. But all of those people before taught me how to handle pressure. They taught me how to diffuse situations you know, and just learn slowly how to build a wine list that was profitable. Don't get too carried away. And I think that was the first kind of buying position I had at Cafe Blue. I was like, well, I'm just going to do a Lespinas list here. And that was not, that didn't fly. I remember this story, which is always kind of funny to me, was like, you know, Marcel was the accountant at uh, the Dynex group, which is Danielle's group. And the, the words of wisdom were, 
everything's fine until you get a phone call from Marcel. Then you're in trouble. <laughs> and I, nobody heard, I didn't hear from Marcel forever. And then uh, I get a call from Marcel, and he's like, why are you buying so much wine? He's like, now I know why I can't afford curtain rods for the new DBGB downtown. <laughs> and then that was pretty much the writing on the wall for me. I was like, well, goodbye, Danielle. Goodbye, Dynex. I, you know, I bid you farewell. And, you know, I was sent on my way. And yeah. I was like, okay, there's a good experience there. You know, this is a business. This is about making money. And that's the flip side of it. this company. Right now, everybody sees the sexy side. And thank you, Som TV, for bringing forth all these great stories. But, like, it, at the end of the day, it's also a business, too. Yeah, you were there as an investor. Yeah. And that's, that was a really good lesson to learn as well. So it's all been, you know, even when you fail, you're like, oh, I was depressed after that because nobody likes losing their job. And then you're like, okay. The phoenix will rise again. Right. And you learn. And you maybe buy only six bottles of this rather than a dozen, or you just keep the list really loose and fluid. And, and that's what I did at Boulay, and it was, it worked. And he really respected me, and that really helped because David could be very – if he didn't like you, you were out. If he liked you, then he, he was hilarious. He's a really funny guy. He's very generous. You know, Boulay would mumble jokes, and he'd be – you know, if he liked you, it was, life was a lot better. Of course. And we made a lot of money. We were we were doing wine pairings, which were new to sort of New York, you know. And his menus were kind of evolving, and you could start throwing down Zabibo or Saki. Speaking or of which, you brought some. <coughs> we got some wines. We we haven't even tasted his wines yet, but he brought some <laughs> very delicious wines to taste. Um, this is an interesting Grenache you brought. It's very pale. Usually Amador is so hot, but I also looked. It was thirteen nine. It's beautiful. I get a lot of strawberry, raspberry. It's bright, lifted. Does it has this kind of strange um, something about it feels like an orchard that's slightly kind of decaying. Yep, it has this kind of interesting like decaying zone to it, which I, I, you know, like when you have a bowl of oranges and one of them is slightly. I, yep, I know. Yeah, that has that sort of vibe to it. Um, yeah, so that that was a, a really interesting time to be a wine director there, and then that led to lots of traveling, and then that led to eventually going to Australia. Yeah, let's talk about two thousand and four. Yeah, which I think is so interesting. Um, given what you are now doing at Brash Higgins, you and Nicole, yep. and what you're championing, that it was it was a trip sponsored by the Grateful Palate. Yeah. Yeah, so for people who 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 haven't been around, uh, the Grateful Palate <coughs> was, uh, they were actually out of Oxnard, yeah, they were out of Oxnard, California. And so they- The they, warehouse they, was yeah, in Oxnard. The warehouse in Oxnard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and they always, because I was living out there then, they would always come up to Santa Barbara, one of the reps, but- um, yep. But like, uh, one of the reasons a lot of people hate Robert Parker is like is because of the wines that Grateful Palate wasn't but like big bombastic five hundred percent new oak, mm. yeah, <laughs> nothing less than fifteen percent alcohol, yeah, uh, fruit bombs from 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 Southern Australia, yeah. Um, so I just think it's interesting. We'll get into it. So how did you end up on the trip in two thousand four with the Grateful Palate? We always had to, f you had to fight really hard to get time off the floor because you were the, you were the guy, right? You were the ace that was making these great wine sales. And we, as, as, I mean, Boulay was always kind of tightly staffed. So it was just me. And I was doing like 90 seats in a four-star New York City dining room. And, you know, people would be ordering expensive Bordeaux or they'd be doing wine pairings. And you had to be all over the place. So to get off the floor was very hard. We made friends uh, at Danube, which is a restaurant that I also got to be the wine director for, which was David's Austrian sibling next door to Boulay, okay. um, which is no longer there. But 
there was a psalm there named Marin Natalin, who uh, I just saw last night, who was someone that I had cultivated and, and made into a psalm there. And so I had him and a bartender who would become a junior psalm at Boulay after this <laughs> get on the floor and cover me. And so I had to get almost a full month off and made an ultimatum to the, the general manager at the time and said, listen, I'm going to do this. It's, I've worked really hard here, and I'm sorry it's a long time, but either I do this or I, I walk. And they're like, okay. I've, you know, major calamity. Anyways, I got what I wanted, and I got to go on this trip. And they invited me to come because the Grateful Palate was trying to spread the word about Australian wine. Yeah. And Jean-Luc was on this trip as well, which to me was going to be kind of fun. And and so we arranged that we could get a free flight over, which is also part of the negotiations with the Grateful Palate, saying we went <laughs> we had all these list of demands, total New York City pricks, you know, like, <laughs> And another thing, no blow-up mattresses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want a nice, I want a nice duvet. And then we got, uh, so we got, uh, I got on this trip. And then I was just really excited because I, you know, it's so far away. And Australia was just, everybody has their own preconceived notions about it. But I'm we, insert, you know, Crocodile Dundee joke here. Insert yeah. minute work reference here. Yeah, which is hardly, <laughs> you know, it's like saying Chicago's about Al Capone and deep dish pizza. You yeah, know, it's like, about yeah. sorry-ass baseball teams. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's about architecture. What yeah, are you talking about? Exactly. It yeah. is about architecture. And Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> I th yeah, I think, you know, um, yeah, so I really didn't know what to expect, but I was, I, really, I was really gunning to get on this trip. And then it was, it was really eye-opening. And we spent most of the trip in South Australia okay. around Adelaide and mm – -hmm. And visited a lot of different producers that were in the Grateful Palette book. And I had just sort of felt uh, some sort of connection and was, like, really, really attentive and, like, really into it. And was like the guy in the bus that would collect cool bottles from every producer so we could have a blowout lunch at the end of the, me at the, end of the trip and, mm -hmm. and took a lot of interest in it. And it's almost like subconsciously I knew that I wanted to somehow come back and – got back to New York and was sad, depressed for weeks, you know, because <laughs> I'd been like Avatar. I'd been in the, you know, secret world where there was space, uh, there was room. You could swing a cat. That was the Australian expression for open space. And, mm -hmm. and you know, for the next few years, kind of worked my way through Boulay, and then eventually uh, I quit and wasn't sure what to do next, but I needed a break and didn't want to go back into hospitality and the restaurant and a lateral move because I thought, I'd, you know, if you can work for David Boulay for four years, you've done really well. Right. And I was proud of myself, but realized maybe it's time for something new. And I didn't even know what that was. But the Grateful Palette had Dan Phillips, who was the owner, yep. had become a regular Boulay. And Chris Ringland, who was one of his winemakers, who was the winemaker for a new company that Dan had started called Our Wines, which was then saying, well, we'll just make our own wines. And we don't need the Shervingtons and the Noons and the Torbrecks. Yep. We can start to produce their own. And so they rented a big winery down in South Australia and said, oh, Brad, why don't you come over for three months and we'll put you to work. And you can just be like the seller dude or the you know guy Friday. And I was like, perfect. And obviously the undercurrent of that was that they will brainwash me and then I'll go back to New York and sell Australian wine and be part of their, you know, because they were looking for oh, yeah. I mean, people I, with credentials. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, this guy is an idiot. He's like at the top of the New York hospitality game. You know, you, you, you could have, you know, you could have, um, you're in a place where you were probably making some decent money and had you stayed in that business, no telling what you would be doing in New York now. But I love your spirit hmm. where it just wasn't you. 
and you wanted to just you said felt it was time to do something different. Yeah, I mean, and then of course there was a girl involved. Oh well, come on, thank you. I'm glad. It's it's, it's always wine is always about a boy or girl. Uh, it always. It is always. It does seem to be like the bad breakups are the ones that you go off and say, "I'm gonna now, I'm gonna become a you know neurosurgeon," yeah, or I'm just gonna you know, and then you move to a new town and you get a new job and your life takes an interesting turn to the left, right? And that was really true. <laughs> I had a I had at the time a, a fiance who was in Spain in Barcelona and I was gonna move there and that yeah. fell apart and I was like, I'm gonna go as far away from Spain as possible, right? So there you go. You got to the crux of that. So really. There was a woman involved in that, and I and I and I just had to get out of New York, and that was really what I needed. And Australia gave me that space. He asked me to come and work for three three months, so it meant I, at least I had a shelter, some connections. You know how to do it, man. <coughs> you're like and you're like I think I'm past my air mattress days, blow up mattress <laughs> days, at least at least blow up mattress in my pocket days. <laughs> I like to have a swimming pool one day where I can just have a array of blow up things, you know, yeah. like <laughs> rafts. Um, and that was, you know, and so going to Australia at that stage was scary because I was 39. I was in LAX on the way to Sydney, and I was like, oh, what the F am I doing? I should have this figured out by now. And I just seemed like, okay, well, you're right. I mean, if I would have stayed in New York, I could have played it safe. I could have gotten a job with a Russian tea house or, you know, somewhere else or gone to Per Se or – yeah, which I felt would just be kind of like just doing something all over again. More the same of the thing. same. And then once I had the revelation that I didn't want to be a restaurateur, that I didn't want to do it for my own business, then I realized, well, then why am I putting up with a lot of grief and a lot of long hours and a lot of all the stuff that's the non-romantic side of the business, which is, you know, the pressure and all the sort of other things that people don't talk about. And so I was happy to go to Australia, but I really didn't know what was going to happen next. And I remember being slightly scared, like, oh, here we go. Like, this is... And but I knew that my life would change, and subletted my apartment in New York, gave myself a little bit of leeway to sort of explore it and know that if it all went wrong, I could come back, and that gave me a little bit of a safety net. And um, fortunately, I you know kind of had an open mind, and I met some key people there that wanted me to stay. And one of them was my future partner Nicole, mm -hmm. who I met just you know at the local pub. I was pruning after the after the vintage had ended. I went to Vietnam for a month and then got on my own, just went up into like the northern part up near China and met a lot of, you know, crazy farmers. Kind of like Martin Sheen and Apocalypse Now, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> up the Mekon River. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, you know, yeah, just w way out of my league again. I was on a motorcycle with a, a Vietnamese guide and I had a little bit of money left and I was like, this looks really cool. I'm going to get on one of these Russian Minx motorcycles which is really good climbing capacity. You know, they're stinky and they're indestructible, essentially. <laughs> and this guy named Hung, Dong. Not, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he and I, and he was super cool. And he, he and I, he took me up into like the Flower Hmong tribes and along the, the, the border of China. I know you don't want to let this go. <laughs> was this last thing? Laika? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God, he was so fun. Anyways, we got into a lot of different – but, I, you know, be meeting a lot of farmers that were my age and had, like, hands, like, burnished, you know, leather mm -hmm. and, and uh, tons of vertical farming. You know, they're farming on, like, sheer cliffs. And and I was like, man, I, I should probably toughen up a little bit, you know. Maybe going back to Australia, I'll, get, I'll prune, and I'll spend the whole year, and I'll just give it more time. I'm not going to go back to New York. I don't know what I want to do there yet. So, yeah, um, yeah that guy that, – that guy – 
hung who took me around. I remember I had no money left to actually give him a tip. And I was like, thanks so much, but I'm a little bit broke right now. I've got, you know, I've got some money back in the States, you know, it's offshore. <laughs> and because, you know, after two weeks with a guy, he's expecting a little bit of a yeah. pat on the back. He's like a little, you know, hey, Lama, how about a little some extra for the effort, you know? Yeah, like come on, $100 to him, would, he, he could have changed his life. Yeah. And, and I got back to Australia, and we stayed in touch, and I eventually sent him $100 back in an envelope, like in cash. You know, like wrap some paper around. Yeah, it. So I know. He used to do that. <laughs> super, super. You know, and he got this cash, and he bought a suit, and he got a job in the government, and his whole life changed. Hundred dollars, and he was like, "I can't believe you sent this." And I was like, "Well, you, you know, you took me on this amazing ride, and it's the least I can do. Hundred dollars, you know, it's two cases of beer here yeah. for you." He's like, "I bought a whole new suit and." Changed his life. It did. That's freaking awesome, man. But that's how I mean. That's what happens when you leave your house, right? This everything can change so quickly. And I came down to, back to Australia with a different mentality and a different thought. Like, well, I will prune. I don't prune and just hang out. And, you know, I can do this. And ended up meeting Nicole mm -hmm. just randomly mm -hmm. after you know, Friday night knockoffs type of deal. And, and she liked me enough to invite me to stay. And she had a vineyard and she was a grape grower. And mm -hmm. it wasn't too long until I discovered that. I'm like, are those your vines? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and then eventually, like, oh, okay, yeah, they're, they're they're yours, and uh, and that was really fun too, because then you got involved in in viticulture, and then like making decisions, and then having a really kind of quick uh, a quick access point to becoming you know a winemaker. Well, talk about about Nicole's vineyard because she planted it herself, right? She planted it, yeah, in 1997 with her husband at that time, who passed away in 2005. Mm. Um, they planted it 17 acres to Shiraz and Cabernet, which were the main and still are the two main red wine grapes, you know, big red back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a gorgeous vineyard, still is. They had a water drilling business, which meant they had geologists and they knew were a kind of sort of good sort of combinations of soil types. Mm -hmm. and this was a meter of red clay over a big sheet of limestone up on a ridge and so it had great drainage good exposure nice spot for particularly for reds if you want to make some muscular red wines and voila the vineyard was planted and then when i met her we um since when her husband passed away she had to take over the water drilling business and raise two kids mm. and then deal with a lot of moving pieces and had her own wine label at the time trying to make a little bit of shiraz and cabernet and so i got busy sort of selling that wine which had started piling up and started learning the kind of discount sort of channels in Australia, which was actually helpful as well, you know, to go from like fine wine world down to like, how do we move shit, yep. you know, <coughs> yeah. was yeah. a really kind of good experience because, you know, this was no longer, you know, $800 bottles of wine. This is now, how do we, you know, rob Peter we got to move Paul. this case, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so, but once that happened, then her label, because of the internet, you know, you couldn't really recover once you try to start discounting your wines. And the vineyard was really nice, and I had more time than to focus on on sort of changing the farming to organic farming. By the way, I'm just going to kill this because you looks like you guys have went in on this Zebo. I'm going to ask you about it. Yeah. So this, uh, so you're pointing the Zebo. Yep. Yeah, it looks good. The end of that bottle is always kind of the more yeah nu uh, nutrient rich. Yeah, I'm like I'm like yeah, the crunchy stuff is free. Um, um. You're going to feel that. It's like drinking echinacea. You know, you're like, oh. Oh, okay. Well, I did live in California for 10 years. I used to do all that echinacea. Yeah, you can feel so your hair growing faster. Exactly. And your vision gets better. Um, 
Yeah, so that's so that vineyard, uh, Omen Setter Vineyard, mm-hmm. where which Nicole planted, became a real, a real, a beautiful place for me to learn about viticulture. And then we had some issues where we it was so hot that um, how hot was it? God, it was. Sorry. Yeah, that the uh, flashers were handing out pictures of themselves. It was so hot. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. You're welcome. He's a, he's a quick study. Yeah. And uh, so we had to start thinking about possibly removing Shiraz, which was, to me, something that made perfect sense. But it was a But it's kind of like sacrilege in Australia. Well, it's in a Shiraz district. You'd rather remove the Chardonnay. Yeah. You know, and then. But what the hell are they doing over there? It's the American. They don't have any Shiraz. <laughs> I like it. Uh, the <laughs> Upper East Side lady who lunches. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Maury. Ah, uh, what's going over there? <laughs> Those hippies. <laughs> so we yeah, we had a um so which was fine, you know, we got a lot of attention for for, for removing Shiraz and, and trialing Nerodavola, which was obviously from Sicily. And and as a wine geek, for me I was it blew my mind. I'm like, Oh my god, you mean we can take Shiraz out? And if it's genetically appropriate, we can put a new variety or any grape variety you can top grow onto, you can graft like a fruit tree, which is something I was, you know, I knew a little bit about. Because he, because he studied botany in college as well, people. Yeah, <laughs> I worked at a nursery that sold yeah, like you, you know that. apple. You could get four different apple varieties on one rootstock. You could have red delicious, yellow Granny Smith, and Cox's orange pippin or whatever, all on one trunk. Damn. Which is cool for a small garden. Yes. If you have one tree, you can I did not even know that was possible. Well, it, yeah, it totally is. But I didn't think it was possible in grape growing. But so rather than have to tear out a whole vineyard and excavate the root system out and start over, you can use that existing root system and put a whole new, new, new variety on top of it. The genetic information stays separate. So Nero was grafted onto Shiraz, to an existing really healthy, twelve-year-old root system, and then. You're just grafting on little buds that are like the size of pencil racers, and then that energy comes roaring up in spring, and you get a huge amount of growth, and then you spend the next two years just kind of shaping the vine so it's in place and you've got you know good structure for the next, whatever, 40 years. And then by the second year, you're actually starting getting fruit. So i got to ask a question because this goes back to something like, how, how, like this is like just from – Working three months in a vineyard, like how did you? I mean, obviously it was p- obviously on the job training, but like, damn man, like this is like some like you didn't go to Davis, you didn't go to uh, Cal Poly, but I'd worked in Portland Nursery and I knew about <laughs> I knew about grafting. Portland I'd, wins again. I swear. So all this disparate information that I was thought I'd just be the most interesting guy in prison, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, all of a sudden, I, I, you could have <laughs> said the bar. I, 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 never, I, the most isn't a guy in prison is getting his ass kicked or something else. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said prison. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm like, where are you? Like, he's yeah. so positive. How do you go there? <laughs> but um, no, I hear you. Um, it, but it all came together at this point. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, but it would, that was a. I mean, again, so that was a game changer for for our vineyard and also to to launch a, a new wine business. So we had. The old wine business, which we needed to reinvent because of the discounting, it was a good vineyard, really nice vineyard, and mm-hmm. it, it was showing a lot of personality. And, and we're like, "How do we do this? We need a new. We need to start over." And we had Nero Davila. And who? And was that was that your idea? How did how did Nero Davila come into the, the picture? That well, I mean, it was at that time a lot of, and still to this day, there are commercial nurseries that that import 
okay. grape varieties, and then they spend three years usually in biosecurity and quarantine to make sure you're not going to fuck the whole thing up. Right. Um, and the Chalmers family uh, was w- kind of the more were very renowned for bringing in particularly Italian varieties because they saw obviously there'd be some applications in South Australia as things got warmer and everything gets ripe in South Australia. It's mm-hmm. like Sicily. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to find the things that are well suited to heat that don't need a lot of water. Nier Davila ticked all those boxes. Kay. The the trick is getting proper clones that aren't virus ridden. And so you're looking for a healthy new clonal material so it stays healthy. And there was a new clone that had cleared quarantine in like 08 called Matura One. Anyways, I this whole thing was blowing my mind. We were looking at Cinso, Carignan, and Nierdavla mm-hmm. as three possible varieties to introduce because they're tough and they can make really delicious wines, very compelling drinking. We went with Nero partially because I'd been drinking Nero from Coast Winery in Sicily, and I love the story and the applications of how similar McLaren Vale was to Sicily. And so, boom, we chose that and trialed it and went to Sicily, said hello, you know, learn more about amphoras than we did about Nero, but realized that certainly the climates were almost identical, hot, dry, ancient soils, you know, very, very arid. Um, so we figured Nero would be a really good choice. The story made sense. Uh, and then found a local potter back in Adelaide who could make clay pots in these amphoras. Because I'm like, that would be really cool. Like, I don't know how it's And what work. year is this? This is... That's 2011. Okay. <coughs> so speaking of amphora, I mean, it's big now. Yeah. Um, was that kind of, were you kind of on the um, early adopter uh, side of that, would you say? I would say so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there was, th- I mean, you never know what's going on in the backyard of certain Itali- well, yeah. Italian families, yeah, you right. know, people uh, can make wine in any vessel, you know, that doesn't leak. I think, yeah, we were definitely the earlier sort of finding a local potter yeah. uh, who had never done anything like it. You know, he'd done maybe 100 liter tandoori ovens. And I met, all roads led to this guy, John Bennett. Because I obviously I was interested, and I was asking my buddies that were like amateur potters, like, "Hey, you made me that wobbly ashtray. What do you think about <laughs> making a two hundred liter amphora vessel that I can put some wine in safely in, uh, you know, for twenty years?" And they're like, uh, "Maybe not." <laughs> Speaking of wobbly ashtrays, remember like how ingrained smoking was in American culture that like mm. when you were a kid, you would bring, you'd make an ashtray and bring it over your parents even if they didn't smoke. That's like there was two things you think about. It was an ashtray or a really look, bad looking dinosaur. Um, they put coins in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> or breath mints. Um, but so that's, that was the sorry, that's that was crazy, the story. Man. There, yeah. There's nobody doing that because Australia had been making a lot of headways as a very reliable and very sane winemaking nation. And you know, we're, and, you know, this is where you have to be cautious because it, was, it has a wonderful reputation for making really reliably consistent wines. And we'd seen that with, you know, massive producers that have infiltrated the U.S. market um, for many years. And so for someone to say, let's take a step back in time and do something anti-industrial like the Jesus Christ era, right. Roman emperors, clay pots, it was an interesting trial. And it got us a lot of attention, and it was really, again, a lot of people thought we were crazy hippies, and then I was just like, well, I would much rather fail miserably with this experiment than just release a mediocre Shiraz. And and that was the real attitude I had. I remember, some, you know, sometimes just somebody will say something and it really hits you, even though you've heard it a million times. I remember a Trent yeah. Reznor in- interview, Nine Inch Nails band, and he was saying, you know, 
you're going to start a new band, for God's sake, try to be original. You know, yeah. don't just go be in a cover band. I mean, yeah. you can if you want to make <coughs> a living. Right. But it resonated, and I was like, yeah, you're right. Um, this makes sense. Let's try to do something different. Otherwise, you know, yeah, it's good for a business to create a new sort of splash and make some noise, but it also helps push the, the dialogue, right? It pushes the envelope a bit, and that's almost as important as to contribute something to the wine region, and, and that was really exciting as well to be like, wow, we, can, uh, we have the potential to introduce a new grape variety using a really, really old very soulful yeah what's style. old is new using this uh, this this old ancient vessel yeah with their new techniques without any guidance or instruction book. yeah you're crazy like that. i love that man no I and mean, nobody would I mean anybody in university or all the trained winemakers i knew were like no 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 idea it's going to be vinegar you know the wine if you leave it for six months in a clay vessel you know what do you expect's going to happen it's going to turn into well, they something w- they were very wrong so i'm drinking one of your wines right now um uh, that is in M4, correct? Yep, the Zabibo. Okay, tell people about Zabibo. So Zabibo is Muscat of Alexandria. Zabibo is the name they use for it in Sicily. Ah, so it's very a, aromatic. Yeah, so Muscat. And I totally got the elderflower, and I turned. I was like, it reminded me of Saint Germain, and I was like, I was like, oh, it does have elderflower, but obviously citrus and mm. apricotty. And I have the this is unfined and unfiltered. For you guys, for the camera, you see it's quite, we would call it dank. Yeah, no, I mean, diaphanous is the word you're after, but anyways. I, I, I never heard that word. <laughs> it's dank where I'm from. Oh, okay. But but I'm gonna, but now it, it's actually, guys, diaphanous. See how quick I'm it is. So, so what does that mean? It's cloudy. It's a little bit sort of, Ooh. it's slightly translucent. It's not clear. You know, it's uh, chiffon. Mr. English major. Go. Ah, well, you know, it's... It you should go on Jeopardy. In the same way that, like, a Hefeweizen is a little bit cloudy, right? So yes. let's go cloudy. The thing, I think, with this wine is that it's so it's so primitive the way it's made. It's essentially mm. taking Muscat, which is very sweet and very very fruity, and then aging it and letting it ferment so there's no sugar in it. And well, let so me tell you about this, though. The wine's dry. Because there was only a little bit left. It's room temperature, not even cellar temperature. But it's so complex, so flavorful, still mm. good, still crushable. Hmm. The tartness in it. Um, what would you like? What would, is there a pairing that you have? Like when, like, because uh, you're a food and wine guy, what would you pair that with? The yeah, the reason this this wine exists to this day is because it's it has a magical aptitude with with really really powerful flavors that cripple other white wines. So one of the dishes we saw very quickly, and it was paired with a psalm in Melbourne at Lake House Restaurant back in probably 2015 when the wines, we first started making this wine, was with a, was, was, was a Morton Baybug annulati. Baybugs are like, like kind of like langoustines. Okay. And it had homemade kimchi and kimchi butter. And so there you, you got, you got, what's that? It's called gochi chang. You got very powerful flavors with kimchi. Yeah. Very, very. Fermenting. Yes, fermented, stinky. Vinegary. Yep. And this wine with that dish was an amazing alchemy, and it ran for like six months. The, the, the longevity of that tasting menu, and so very quickly it had a place at the table. And we saw not only was it a fun and interesting wine to drink, it had a lot of sort of applications that almost tastes a bit like sour beer. It can taste a little bit, yeah, get that. I see that. You know, yeah. refreshing like Snapple tea had mm-hmm. a lot of lemon verbena. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like. <laughs> 
in China, I'm sure they put some ice in there and it'd be like lemonade. I mean, it, it, yeah. is, it is very refreshing. Yeah, and that's and that was part of the the thrill was to see how it how it stood up with with flavors like Szechuan and, and Indian like chutneys, and then really simple flavors like Jamaican jerk chicken. Dude, you are these are like I'm just envisioning all of them. I'm like, yeah. yep, bang, yep. If we go to yep, I'm like, yo, I need some Korean barbecue, but yeah. I need this. I need to go to jerk hut, Philly, boom, this, boom. Yeah. Spending a week in New York was great with this wine because you're you're showing it to a lot of different interesting, really talented Absolutely. songs. Absolutely. And they're like, Yeah, we've got this scallop dish with, you know, corn and ha- habanero and like, oh, that could work. Or like a charred octopus or something slightly burnt or you know, blackened. Yeah. And Mexican street corn. I mean, the, the anchovies, anything with vinegar. And so these are. This was a gap that a lot of white wine, you know, just can't fill. Couldn't handle. Yeah. So that that's why the wine and the storyline behind it was interesting as well. We wanted to make a wine that had a compelling story to your average drinker who might be, you know, a doctor or a bus driver or a dancer, and you can take them on a journey and say, "Here's a wine from the center of Australia. It's very hot, made by you know this person." And then, you know, made in a clay pot, left alone for five months. You know, it's really primitive. It has a layer of yeast that grows on the top of it, you know, that layer of floor, which protects the wine from spoiling. And, you know, turns out to be kind of a really interesting drink. And it's a grape uh, in Australia that might be more destined for fresh eating or sultanas or box wines even, you know, or Mm -hmm. cheaper sparkling muscats. So we... We were looking for a, a, a white wine that we could turn into something, uh, you know, that orange wine category, long skin contact, that would be just, you know, really different. And it, uh, it sort of suit the bill. The first year we made it was in our carport. Uh, we didn't have a winery at the time. We were transitioning because it turned out like... A true garagist. <laughs> it was definitely... <laughs> There was a lot of winemakers were un- uneasy with the, the floor growing on top of these vessels. Mm-hmm. It was seen to be maybe possibly could spread. Oh, and wow. uh, so we were sort of politely asked if we could make the Amphora wines maybe somewhere a little bit more neutral. And then, you know, but that was 2013 was that first year. And then we realized we probably need our own winery and, and reconverted an existing shed into a winery. So Brass Higgins has its own its own workspace now, which is really awesome to have our own sort of our own zone where we can just take time and and tinker around and make wines like that. That you know you don't always want to have people behind you pushing you because we're not sure how the wines are going to resolve themselves. Are they going to what are they going to drink like? And so it's given me the sort of freedom to be more creative, you know, and have a place where you can execute an idea, which is again very fortunate. Like this is I didn't have to work at a giant winery and then quit. You know, I was able to come from this with a perspective of a New York City wine guy, mm-hmm. kind of let loose in Disneyland, like go. And that's almost all due to, to Nicole and just to the to the her trust in me, and also I think in just that sort of curiosity that you have as a wine wine lover to be all of a sudden given the keys to the to the you know to the asylum. And, you know, why not? And, and you just trust your own palate. If it tastes good to me, if I think it's good or it has some potential and Nicole likes it, then we'll release it. And you don't have to go through a raft of a marketing department. And That's nice, right? Yeah, so you can, you can, you can move quickly. And if it doesn't work, then no one is ever going to hear about it. You know, they'll just disappear <laughs> under the moonlight outside. The serious moonlight. Okay, so 
So it's opened up the door to make Neurodavola and Amphora. Yeah, so we Sabibo were talking about Neurodavola. Yeah, Nero. So what was the first wine that went into the Amphora? That was the Neurodavola? That was the Nero, and that was probably the wine that put Brashigans on the map right away as someone either to be afraid of or to like. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> and who is this Brash Higgins fellow anyway? <clears throat> the wine was not liked in our local market in Adelaide at all, which was, you know, which I expected because it was really different than your typical red. And we went to Melbourne and Sydney to sort of introduce it to, to that market, a little bit different um, expectations and different probably broader drinking uh, population and and the wine was received pretty well in those other markets in Australia. And then back home, it took a few years for that sort of near Davila, the less oaked, less alcoholic style that, that Robert Parker championed um, and the Grateful Palate championed to start looking at wines that were, yeah, a little bit more um, spacious, you know, not as dense and not as fruity and not as sweet. And uh, and then Nero was, I think, a really influential wine for, as I understand it, from a lot of winemakers, especially in South Australia. It showed them the, the potential that we could do things because we're not probably going to really excel in Pinot Noir, maybe outside of the Adelaide Hills, like Lolo, like the Barossa and McLaren Vale are quite warm. Yeah. So what else can we start working with that we can make a little bit more, you know, fresh, easier drinking, less oak and less alcohol? And Nero really ticked a lot of boxes right away. So that was really exciting. And then we started seeing, you know, Grenache is now being made with a lighter hand and less alcohol. And there's a lot of beautiful old heritage Grenache vineyards that planted a long time ago. Yeah, that's I do love that about it. There's so many old vine, uh, what do you call them, bush vines, in fact. Yeah, the ones where the, the trellises collapse right. and the vines just kind of support themselves. It's uh, And a lot of these vineyards are planted in, like, really interesting old sandy vineyards and the sand. Right, like that, you know, sand. When when I hear sand and most uh, Grenache, you you think Rios, but uh, there's only one Rios, but there Mm. is something about sand and Grenache and sand. And and you you brought, like you said, you get a taste through some stuff. Yeah. This Grenache, like I said, is from Amador. We don't have to bump it up, but, like, what, what, like, like, what are you, what are you finding in that compared to some of the things you drink at home? I think it's it has Grenache has an inherent sweetness to it, uh, almost a confectionery quality, and that's why we made a Grenache. That's probably why I like it. <laughs> yeah, but if if it's in the if you let it go too long, it can become really boozy, and, and alcohol escalates really quickly. Yes, I mean most Grenache, in, at least in South Australia, was planted to make port, right. so it had fortified wine as its end game. So, in fact, a lot of it was torn out in the 80s. The government had a vine pull scheme where they wanted to remove Grenache because they were trying to introduce some more noble varieties to make still wines, table wines. And fortunately, we've learned that Grenache, if you dial it back and dial it back, you can kind of approach maybe a Reyes-like elegance. Yeah, I tell, I've said, I'm, I'm, say I'm famous in my own mind, but I've been saying for years, I think Pinot Noir wants to be Grenache when it grows up because if you dial, if you dial Grenache down, you'll get the flavors of like a really ripe Pinot, like, you know what I mean? Like when you, yep. when you turn it down, you're like, ugh, she's a beauty. Yeah. 
the old adage is, you know, Grenache delivers what Pinot promises, yeah. right? So that's the T-shirt. That, that's, that's the one that I'm like, you know. And, you know, we all know that Pinot is very much a chameleon and a much more difficult grape to probably to, to vinify and to grow in the vineyard. Grenache is tough. And so it does well in warm climates like Chateauneuf and, right. and McLaren Vale. And it's vigorous. I mean, at one time it was the most planted grape in the world. Like you can, like you said, it was used in fortified wines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, and, and going back to the business of wine, yep. if it's hot and it can grow, doesn't need a lot of water, plant it. Yeah. Can make money off it somehow. Yeah. Put it in cough syrup, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that. But yeah, no, it's true. That there's say so now we're trying to find ways of, of, of making it that are really pretty and delicate. Yes. And maybe, you know, you're finding different single vineyard sites that are either in higher altitude or they're closer to the Adelaide Hills or they're in sand and they have a different flavor profile. The sandy soils tend to bring out more perfume more lacy, more kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more fragrant qualities. Heavier soils tend to make a bit more powerful, darker styles of wine from or Grenache. But it's interesting now that there's a lot of single vineyard Grenaches being bottled. And people are asking real money for them, too. It's a different sort of price point because it is it is our sort of foray into that, you know, how expensive and crazy has Pinot Noir gotten? Right. So... Grenache can sort of it can play in that field, hold its own. Yeah, but let's flip gears, um, flip gears, switch gears. Yep. Um, but then why do you plant and sell? <laughs> yeah, we, there was because there are already existing Grenache vineyards that we could actually we could we could contract and buy fruit from, and we'd already had relationships in place with Yangara Winery, which is a I know Yangara. Bank Gorgeous biodynamic yep. vineyard planted in the sandy part, the Blewett Springs part of McLaren Vale, which is getting a lot of hype. That changed, uh, I'll tell you, a Blewett Springs Grenache from Clarendon Hills, that Australian wine collection when I first got in the wine business, changed my world. It made Grenache like my favorite grape. I was like, what is this? Exactly. And those were, those were really, those were pretty pretty powerful styles and those were big because that was yeah. that was that was 90 so it was 97 so it might have been like the 96 or 95 of that one and it, i mean it was big i mean it was it was like blue black in color i mean it yeah. was dense but still like i you know um just getting into the wine business and you know uh, there had been commercials for like ej and gallo white grenache and yeah. it goes from this like crazy sweet mass-produced wine to like this and you know um but this and so, been twirling and sniffing it and twirling it and sniffing it and, good lord, man! <laughs> it's like it's, a, it's got like a candy apple, cinnamon, just red fruits, just popping off, kind of like the Mediterranean too. But so, like, tell me about this. Is this M4? How do you how do you treat this wine and how old are the vines? For all my wine geeks who are listening right now. Since so is, uh, yeah, we hadn't worked with it as a, we envisioned this being a component in a Mataro Cinso Carignan blend, which. A vineyard next to ours, a grower approached me probably, it's an existing vineyard, he approached us probably eight years ago and said, hey, listen, I hear you guys make some weird wine. I have three That's acres a good of, <laughs> I have three acres of Semillon that I can't sell. We're thinking of taking it out. What would you be interested in? And if we do it, will you guarantee that you'll buy it mm-hmm. for a long time? Because most growers need to get paid, obviously. Most people need to get paid. But right. if you if we tell them to put in three really esoteric varieties and don't buy it. You got to buy it. You got you to gotta tr- get like otherwise a 20-year contract. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they'll just put in Shiraz and hope that Treasury or one of the bigger winery companies will. Yeah. So anyways, we said, let's try Cinso and Carignan. And we knew Mataro or Mervedra was already in the, the region and did very well. 
Sinso and Carignan both had reputations for being tough, robust. Sinso very light and, and more delicate, pale. And then Carignan, good yield, good color, a real quintessential red wine grape, you know, to handle heat. And so off we went. And that vineyard, we could keep a close eye on it. It was just literally next to ours, so we could monitor it. We could help farm it. We could pick it easily and bring it back. And and since so, I had no idea. It was, it was a pretty heavy cropping, very pale skin, um, coppery almost. And we were just obviously, you know, you couldn't help but try to make a little couple of barrels on its own just to see. Mm -hmm. and, and it came in, the numbers were, looked great, the ferments were really smooth, we pressed it fairly light because we were just working with it for the first time. And we really wanted to introduce that sort of lighter, fresh, almost chillable red element. Because uh, who needs big reds? Like that's no longer interesting. We have Cabernet and Shiraz, and we can do that with Mataro if we want to make more yeah. powerful reds. Yep. Yep. The, I, the trickier part where we lived was uh, trying to make the medium-bodied, fragrant, delicate and since so had all of that dna it was really seemed to be perfectly suited and we had a light touch in the winery so ferments we punched down twice a day fermenting grapes this is de-stemmed so we really wanted to see what the grapes looked like without the stems because we were just learning about it and then it's pressed pretty gently into neutral older barrels that are going to be inert and just allow the wine to go through mallow and which is you know malolactic fermentation and then try to bottle it, you know, in the same year that it's it's picked. So it's a kind of a summery, spring, fresh, again, pop it in the Esky, which is a cooler uh, in Australia. Um, yeah, and maybe, you know, finding a way, it's a wine that's steps up, a step up from rosé, you know. It's in that sort of Pinot Noir camp, but it's a little bit, you know, a little bit less serious than Pinot. It's a little bit fresher. It's like got that sort of cherry starburst. Yeah, I was just saying, it's, it's, that's, I was like, it tastes like a candy. And that's what it's like. I was like, it's, straight, it's cherry starburst. Yeah, you need candy metaphors. It helps, it helps explain. Oh, I'm like, yeah. And for all my brothers, it's now and later. It's like, it's, like, it's like actually like a cherry now and later. Yeah, our Jolly Ranchers were yes. always good sort of yeah. wine comparisons. Totally. Um, and it's tough, and it works well where we are, and it's, we can pick it late, and it late's good because you want the you want the winery to be. I mean, like it's ripe. I mean, so this it's fourteen six, but it's not hot. It's completely balanced. It's, it's integrated. Yep. And um, it's just beautiful. It's juicy. That's an anomaly. And when the twenty twenty one comes over, that's that's coming in at eleven percent, and that's kind of where I think it suits. Well, Senso is interesting because yeah, I've had Senso, I've had them at over fourteen five, yeah. and then I've had them. Like at 12, 12, 5. Yep. And the beauty of the fruit's there regardless, yep. you know, regardless of where you're picking. Um, and uh, so that's interesting that this one, was it just hotter in 2020 or just you pick later? 2020 was warm and there was a lot of fires. And, oh, that's know, right, yeah. It was I, I, yeah. I have the fires. It's very oh, apocalyptic geez. in Australia when it wants to be. 2021 and 22. <laughs> it's pretty apocalyptic everywhere in the world right now. Yeah. Bro, wherever you want to be. Like but yes. But when you're back here. But, I, but, I'm, but I live in California. When yeah. People, when you see a wildfire, it's the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. You feel so helpless. Yeah, yeah. And we haven't, I think the Adelaide Hills has more because it's more forested. McLaren Vale's been fairly cultivated, so there's not as much forest, you know, which obviously would be more threatening in a bushfire. And we're right on the ocean. So that's kind of another way you can just run into the ocean if right. shit hits the fan. Right. You can be like, I'll just. But since so, um, and Carignan and Mataro, we can pick them later. And we'll pick them when they're normally ready, which is in our cycle of <laughs> harvest, usually 
the last one of the last picks of the year. So you can have Shiraz and Cabernet Franc and other things that we're working with ferment, pressed, put to put to bed essentially, and then clear the floor and then bring in the Cinso and Carignan. And so it works in the rhythm of a vintage as well because you don't want everything to hit you at once. Right. So finding grapes that have longer time on the vine. With good staggered stages. So yeah. So it's because it's just me really making the wine, and you know I am I make about thirteen or fourteen different wines, and so you have to sort of clear your head sometimes as well. And physically, the uh, you know the, the physical element of doing punch downs by hand, you know morning and night. So sometimes we can recruit maybe a, a couple of different, or maybe I'll find somebody who wants a hospitality a worker who wants to come down for a few days when things get really heavy. Or you can I might come visit you, man. Yeah, I yeah. I might come hang out with you. You know, you need to find, you know, people. Do I need to find an air mattress? No, I have a, <laughs> yeah, you should bring one anyways. Cause, <laughs> but no, you should come. But I think that's part of it, too, is that it's the, it's the, it's the routine of, of the punch down. Yes. You know, it's once this fruit comes into the winery, you're, you're obligated to take care of it. It's yeah. like having a child. Yeah. And you can't really take your eye off it until it gets into some sort of safe place. Right. Right. I'm talking about being like a mash hospital, like during harvest, you're like, okay, who's bleeding out the worst here? Triage, exactly. Yeah, you're right. okay. Let's put you, yeah. and then, oh my, okay, we have a problem. The bullet went right through. Relax. Yeah. <laughs> have a shot of morphine. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be fine. This guy over here is not yeah. having yeah. a good, yeah. He's going to lose limbs and might die. Sorry, did we say that out loud? Um, no, that's awesome, man. Um, wow, we're, all, we're like pretty much out of town. So your name is Brad Hickey. Your partner's Nicole Thorpe. Who the fuck is Brash Higgins? Brash Higgins. Uh, that's that was that's my superhero name. I love it. Oh, that's. I love that. <laughs> Did I thought we already went over? Oh man. So Brash became when I first started working the uh, the pruners that I was working with. They all had nicknames, and every uh, I mean, nicknames in Australia people are, have a lot of nicknames, and it's kind of a sign of belonging. Yes. If you have a good nickname. Yep. So I was working with guys, you know, like Knackers and Bobo and Whiskers and Bed yep. Sores, Trigger. Um, Digga. Digga is a nickname. I have a friend who hangs out in Melbourne and is like, Digga for Clam Digga. Digga. Digger. I met a guy named Diesel <laughs> yesterday. Uh, so so Brad was kind of like a little bit boring. And then... Brad from the suburbs of Illinois. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like somebody in the 80s, somebody with a popped collar in an 80s John Hughes movie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> or, you know, like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. <laughs> More likely. So, yeah, these guys eventually, you know, when they warmed up to me, their initial nickname was Seppo, which is Septic Tank. Oh, wow. Which is yeah. Cockney rhyming slang for Yank, and which is not very nice to be called a wow, Septic Tank. Wow, they're like shithead. They should just call you shithead. I know, and but I could understand them after a while. I could start to, you know, yeah. I could start to figure out these thick accents. And when they, when they're obviously just hanging out drinking beer around a fire, it's really a lot of, you know, a lot of colloquialisms. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I, I, okay, I get the Seppo thing, thanks. But come on. <laughs> and then after another week or so of proving myself a little bit and kind of weathering the storms and the rain and drinking stout by the fire after pruning, the the name Brash was born as the Brash New Yorker. Love it. And it stuck. And then I was like, cool, I've got a good nickname. And it made me feel welcome to the community, which was big because, you know, you're on the other side of the world and it helps to have some encouraging words. And Brash was really sweet because it meant that they liked me enough to, to give you a nickname to not call me yeah, septic, septic tank. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So we're going to wrap up here. That's a good way to uh, no, we got it. We got two more things. Um, we're going to play a little game called FMK. Fuck, marry, kill. 
give you three grapes. You get to fuck one. You get to marry one. You got to kill one. Oh God. Yes. So we're gonna do we're gonna do uh, Nero, Senso, and I'm just gonna move, throw a wild card here. Grenache. Who you fucking? Who you marrying? Who you killing? Uh, definitely fucking Senso. Um, geez, I, I, all three of them, honestly. I would probably marry Grenache because she is proven to be a... Well, you could fuck the grape before you kill it. <laughs> <laughs> Grenache has shown like the most sort of, I suppose, uh, you know, longevity. So that might be the good solid one yep. to build a, a family around the yep. marriage with, yep. the gr- with the Grenache. The Senso, I think, is very flirtatious and a probably totally. a, a good time. In I'm the, in uh, love with her right now. You know, the top's down. <coughs> yep. Credit card waving in the yep, air, yep. hair blowing, and yep. that's that's probably the that's probably the, uh, the the effable one. And then, yeah, I couldn't kill Nero because I sort of built my whole business around it. So, I might kill Zabibo one day. Okay, there you go. Yeah. I, I like that. You know, there you go. You're like Zabibo might have to go. Although that's very good. Don't do that. You, I you should have said I was going to give you Nebbiolo because, but you already said you're not fucking with it. So yeah, that's all. more of just respect. Yeah. Well, okay. Like Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir, I'm just like, yeah. We we make a Chardonnay, and it's very much uh, a wine called Bloom, which is a very sort of Van Jean application. So it's yeah. We didn't even get into that. So you know what? You get to come world. back. Boom. Um, and what are you most excited for about in the future of yourself, Brash Higgins, whatever the world of wine? What are you most excited about? We're we love traveling. I think that's been the real excitement is opening up some international markets from Jap- from Japan to Copenhagen to you know, to London, to Bangkok. Um, that's always exciting to find good partnerships and be able to travel. You know, I think for the most part, we really want to just sort of make sure that of the 12 or 13 wines that I'm making that I that I stay on top of those because it's, it's complicated, as you know, to try to keep the level uh, of your winery at the highest possible level. Sure. And, you know, there's only a certain amount of wine that you can make, and you say you have, like, 14 SKUs. There's only a certain yeah. amount where you can touch every barrel, so I, I understand the struggle you have. It's real. I mean, a lot of them are maybe 100, 100 case, 200 case production, too, so it's not out of the question. But, yeah, and I think that's part of the part of the rush, too, is to be able to, 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 to help introduce the world to Australian wines um, in a different capacity than maybe 20 years ago, that there is a, a sort of an insurgence of innovation and progressive winemakers, and there's just so many people and friends of ours that that we want to get the word out about. And I think now being slightly, I mean, I wouldn't say a senior spokesman, but someone who's been through a dozen vintages, that that we can be a bit of a leader and help introduce the rest of the world to some really cool wines that probably aren't getting a lot of attention. So hopefully that's something I can do as well. Well, I would just say, man, thank you so much for being here. And if you've done 12, vint- that 12 vintages, you have put in your proverbial 10,000 hours so you know what you're talking about with great with with fine authority hey brad um tell people how they can find you how they can be a part of what you're doing with brash higgins we're i'm pretty active on instagram at brash higgins uh online brash higgins.com is a a way to kind of dig deeper into the story and see more about the wines and in themselves most of the wines we make have interesting stories that that we kind of uh, elaborate on on the website um, not very active on Twitter, um, but uh, that's okay. That's yeah, fine. <laughs> for all you listeners out there, uh, don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. 
that's where we will post uh yeah, I'll post the links in his socials some uh the wines we had today not the wines he brought in uh just because but they were dope um and and other cool things we discussed in the episode and until the next times cheers to the mavericks the philosophers the deep thinkers and all you wine drinkers it's your boy mj peace thank you so much for listening i hope you learned something you had some fun while you were here Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.